Hello, nerds. Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast, episode number one. Thank you so much for being here. I am your head nerd, Brendan. Got a great episode for you today. Best-selling author, Kate Moore, who has written Radium Girls and The Woman They Could Not Silence. Uh, she's super interesting. She does a lot of awesome things with her time. Um, I think you'll really enjoy it. But before we get to Kate... I want to give you a little bit of a primer on History Nerds United since this is the inaugural episode. History Nerds United is based off of my website, historynerdsunited.com, which was created out of spite. Specifically, spite of Amazon reviews. If you are a history nerd, which is to say you're special like me, it's really tough to find books that are geared towards history that had a lot of reviews. And when you go onto Amazon and something looks interesting, a history book is going to have something like four or five reviews, and at least two or three of those are going to have weird responses like, hey, I gave this book one star because the Kindle version was missing a page. Needless to say, that is not helpful. So I decided in my infinite arrogance and lack of shame to just create my own website where I would review history books, where I would talk about TV shows based upon history and true crime and basically anything nonfiction. I've been running that website now for two years. Please check it out if you haven't already. And along the way, I decided, what happens if I just email authors and see if they'll talk to me? And turns out, much to my surprise, that history authors are very generous with their time, even if you're just a dork with a website that probably only his mom reads. Hi, mom. Anyway, Kate Moore is one of those authors, along with at least a dozen others at this point, who took their time and were so gracious and so interesting, and I recorded it so that you all out there could listen. Now, uh, the podcast will be a little bit all over the place. Sometimes it will be me sitting down with an author and just kind of asking them about anything under the sun. I don't know. Maybe I'll get my friends on here and we'll do the history of whiskey and get drunk while we're doing it. It's going to be a little bit chaotic and I want you to just go with it, everybody. But let's talk about episode one. Kate Moore, uh, as I mentioned, she's written a lot and, and done a lot of different things, but we're going to focus on the two nonfiction books that she's written. The first being Radium Girls, which is about a bunch of young ladies female factory workers in the 1910s and the 1920s who got sick with radiation poisoning from working with, you guessed it, radium. Yes, the title is very on the nose. Uh, it talks about the struggles that they have becoming sick and trying to fight their company to get compensated. It's a really great book. It was best-selling, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Kate's newest book is called The Woman They Could Not Silence. It's about Elizabeth Packard who in the 1800s had the gall to have an opinion. You, you just hate to see it. And her husband took her and threw her into an insane asylum because back in the day you could do that relatively easily, which the book will chronicle for you. Um, Kate takes a lot of time to just go through these things, tell you how she found out about these subjects and why she fell in love with them and just had to write about them. So let's not belabor the point. Let's get straight to Kate. History Nerds United, Episode 1, with author Kate Moore. All right, Kate Moore, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I mean, let me jump right into it. I'm surprised that you have any time for anything, because just going through your bio, 
you're an editor, you're an author of fiction and nonfiction, ghost writing, acting in plays, directing in plays, and it seems like everything under the sun. Is there anything that you currently don't do? That might be a shorter list. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a full life, but that's how I like it, really. I like being busy, so. And I know uh, in your bio it says that you always wanted to be an author, but you actually started as an editor. I mean, how does that, that's right. how do you even get that job and what is that like when you first start? Well, I think that's a really good question because I know certainly when I began working as an editor and it was kind of a shock to me that that job even existed. It wasn't sort of something that I'd thought about, oh, I could do this, you know, and it's just such a wonderful job. Uh, I really encourage anyone actually who wants to write, you know, if they're not quite at the stage in their life where they're ready to write the book. And, you know, for some of us, it does take longer than for others. Being an editor is a wonderful career. Um, even if you don't want to be a writer, it's a, it's a wonderful career, you know, to get to work with books, to get to work with authors. My career was very hands-on and creative as well. So, while I did work with some big name writers at, at certain times, other times I was working for small independent publishers where we were brainstorming ideas. And then I was writing some of those books and, you know, very hands on editing of, you know, we need a, a box text on this, you know, and I'd be the one to go off and research it. You know, that sort of um, very creative editorial work, which I absolutely adored. So, yeah, I was super excited to get that job and, and to do it for, you know, more than 10 years. It was a wonderful career and a wonderful, you know, background uh, to becoming an author to really give me that insight into the publishing world. So how long were you an editor before you realized that you could do it better than most of the stuff that you were reading? You can be honest. It, 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 that, it, that wasn't the case. It was... It, <laughs> and, and as I say, I was working on very different books, so it, it was it was it is a different thing. I, I would say actually, from the word go, it, it was something I realised I could do together. So actually, from my very first job, and actually the previous question said, how do you get a job like that? Well, I was lucky. I worked for a sort of multimedia company, and initially I was working in sort of sales operations on their video and DVD side. And then they had a publishing arm as well. And someone went on maternity leave and I got her maternity cover. And in that publisher, there were five of us, you know, in the publishing division. So as you can imagine, very hands-on. I did production and editorial. And in that very small team, there were opportunities right from the word go to write, to volunteer my services, to do that kind of thing, to be that hands-on editor. So I would say actually from the very beginning of my career, I realized it was something that sort of went hand in glove with the kind of if books, humor books, uh, you know, that I was working on. And does that lead directly, because you were a ghostwriter for, you know, quite a few books as well. Did it lead, yeah. you're a very good editor, somebody needs some help on the side and they kind of put your name in? Or how does ghostwriting come about? Uh, I think there are, I think they are complementary skills, certainly. Um, although it is very different, you know, being faced with that blank page and having to fill it and then being the editor where that page is already filled and you can just fiddle and, you know, adapt. It, they are quite different skills, I think. Um, but in my case, yes, ghostwriting led directly on from being an editor, partly because I had this wonderful colleague who trusted me to become a ghostwriter. And so she gave me ghostwriting commissions before I'd done any ghostwriting. You know, I think whatever career you're in, you always need someone that has that faith in you and takes that punt when you don't have any experience. And she really believed in me and believed I could do it. Um, 
for one of the books. She, she gave me two ghostwriting commissions from the get-go. And one of the books I did a proposal for, but the other one I didn't. And she was just like, I, I think you can do this. I believe in you. So, you know, let, let's make this happen. I'm, I'm going to give you the job. Uh, so, yeah, it was incredible. And so, as I say, it came, my experience as a ghostwriter came directly from being an editor, partly because of that, you know, access to contacts and opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And how do you balance out all the different things that you do? Because, I mean, speaking to other authors, like if they're going to write a book, they shut out the world, everyone leave me alone, and they have to go into a cave or something like that, and they mm. just write for six months or research or things like that. Is that how you kind of work, or do you need to kind of be bouncing around doing multiple things at once? When I'm actually writing, I am a cave dweller. <laughs> <laughs> and it is very intensive it's you know I, I work really long days and you know work seven days a week if I have to and I'm in the zone doing the writing when I'm researching I'm much more fluid and flexible assuming the schedule allows and it is then more like a normal job and I can do nine to five or you know whatever schedule suits but yes when I'm writing um, and with my history books in particular what I do is I research everything beforehand I'm a plotter so everything is plotted to the nth degree and in history books like the radium girls and the woman they could not silence there are so many sources um, I have to know exactly which quote I'm using where and how the narrative is going to flow together and I am someone who almost writes a blueprint for my books you know it's almost paragraph by paragraph in certain places that I know exactly what's going where where the cliffhanger endings are going to be you know how the twists and turns of the narrative operate and I do all that plotting and planning beforehand so that when I am in my cave and writing I'm just totally in that zone and in that world and I've done so much preparation that the words can just flow off the page and I write really fast you know I'll do between you know, depending on the book, between five to even 15,000 words a day, um, because I can just blitz it. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of writer that I am. I am a quite a cave dweller when I'm actually doing the writing. I mean, for people who haven't, you know, really looked into this, that's a lot of words in one mm. shot. Like that's it crazy. Is, yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. I'm assuming lots of coffee, <laughs> like just vats of coffee just to keep going. <laughs> drink coffee actually but uh, I think I'm just you know energized by the creative process and um, I will obviously add that generally obviously I am writing non-fiction which I think helps in terms of getting those words on the page because I know exactly what's happened and a lot of the you know you know a lot of the books that I write as well are source heavy so it'll be like okay that's where I'm putting that you know long quotation from the letter and you know bang you've got 250 words in an instant so it's not it's not as impressive as it sounds, but I do I do write fast once once I'm off. And I need to correct myself. Obviously, I shouldn't have said coffee. Lots of tea. You're in the UK, so it must be lots of tea. <laughs> That's my fault. Um, so you know, you already mentioned them. Um, I wanted to start with Radium Girls, which mm. a, an amazing book. And you know, doing my own research, you got the idea from a play that you were working with that was mm. on this. Like, how did that come about? It was just it just popped in. You saw the play and you're like, oh man, somebody needs to write a book about this. It was such a serendipitous journey, uh, me and the Radium Girls. So I was looking for a play to direct next. And I literally just Googled great plays for women because I wanted to put on a play that had, you know, great parts for female actresses that told a story with female protagonists. 
And a play that came back on that Google search was These Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich, which is about the Ottawa, Illinois dial painters. Uh, these are the women uh, from the First World War and Roaring Twenties who were poisoned by the radium paint that they work with, and they courageously fight for justice against their employers. And immediately, having found that script, I fell in love with it, fell in love with the women, uh, pitched it to my theatre company in London to put it on. Actually, initially, we got a knockback on the rights, and I was told by the agency in America, you can't put the play on. And basically, I would not take no for an answer because I already felt so passionate about these women. And so I begged the agent to allow me to put it on. And luckily, we got a yes. And I started researching because I knew it was based on a true story. And I wanted my production to be as authentic as it possibly could be. And also to emphasize to my cast members that these are real women you're portraying. And I did, you know, presentations to my cast where I showed them pictures of the people, you know, read out, you know, letters from Catherine Donahue that I'd found online and things like that. And the more I got into this story and the more research I did, I was shocked to discover that there was no, you know, narrative, nonfiction, readable account that starred the women themselves. You know, there were books on their legal legacy. There were books about the science of the story. But there was nothing about Catherine Donoghue and Pearl Payne and these other women that I'd fallen in love with. And so the book came about because I was just stunned that the book didn't exist. And I thought the women really deserved such a book. So that was how the book came to be. I ultimately thought, well, you know, if no one else has done it, why don't I? And the Radium Girls was the result. I do love how that's an amazing story that started with, well, I Googled. Uh, it really, yeah. great things can come from Google. I wonder if they'll sponsor <laughs> the podcast. Probably not. But um, what I really liked about Radium Girls, and it was just, I, I was kind of thinking about it, prepping for this. It's almost a horror story when you mm. read it because there's this feeling of you know this isn't going to turn out well for the women you're not quite sure who's going to make it and who's not and things like that and you just see this slow deterioration and it almost mm. felt as you're reading you have these young women who are living their lives and you almost feel like freddy krueger is in the closet right it's, it's the radium mm. and it's the sickness and everything but you don't know when it's going to happen and you don't know who it's going to hit and you're just kind of reading the book and going along and saying like, well, what's next? Because you don't know how well this turns out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of elements of that. And I have to say, you know, as a writer and a reader myself, you know, I devoured Stephen King as a teenager and things like that. So that is very much sort of in my canon and in my background, if you will. So I think a lot of elements of that were intertwined in the narrative and, you know, I, I, as I said, I, you know, discovered this story through a play and I think that sense of drama is also there, you know, trying to help readers turn the pages and sort of really underlining uh, the page turning nature of the story and all the twists and turns uh, that the girls have to face. And is that something very conscious you have to choose when you say, all right, I want this to kind of feel like it's ramping up and something significant is going to happen or where, you know, even in The Woman That Could Not Silence, in kind of the background, it's it's a terrible story, but it's also kind of funny. Like, there are just certain things that are so ridiculous throughout. Is that something that mm. you as an author are sitting there saying, like, this is the tone I'm going for? Or especially with the speed that you write, you just write and you just let whatever naturally comes out come out? 
that's, a, that's a tricky question to answer. I, as I say, I am a potter, so I always know if I'm, you know, I know when I'm going to mention those shocking facts that you think, I can't believe that they used to lock up women for reading novels in insane asylums, you know, as happens in The Woman They Could Not Silence. So I know when that sort of almost arch tone of, can you believe they did this? You know, this is the reality. I know when I'm going to bring that in. Um, and it's obviously part of my approach to the topic that I, I have, you know, that is my view and I'm going to communicate that view to the reader as well you know hopefully not in any heavy-handed way but hopefully you know as the narrative progresses you get a sense of these shocking scientific facts and the things that people used to believe um so yeah so I I, I think it probably is deliberate as I as I uh, as the narrative unfolds did you think the radium girls came out perfect and you just really had a feeling that it was going to be a huge book or were you just kind of like hey, I think I did a good job let's see what happens no, uh, not even that, I think. I mean, it was it was very emotional writing it. I totally over-delivered. I was late delivering it. Um, I got a small extension, but couldn't get any more extension. So that really was a, a round-the-clock, really intense, you know. There were a lot of tears. There were a lot of late nights. Um, and even when I delivered it, which it, it almost, when I look back, it feels like a superhuman effort that I managed to deliver it you know I literally I wrote the book in a month that's that's how long it took me to actually do the writing which uh and when I delivered it it was 60,000 words longer than the book that you read because as I say I over delivered then I had to cut it back um and so in terms of how I felt when I finished it I definitely didn't think it was going to be a huge hit uh I hoped that I'd done the women justice I hoped I'd done the story justice I was way too close to it to tell and certainly everything that's happened with it, with it becoming a New York Times bestseller, with, you know, American librarians voting it their favourite nonfiction book of 2017, you know, just mind boggling things like that. I certainly never, ever, ever anticipated that anything like that would would happen from it. I just hoped that I'd done an all right job with it, basically. And now when you finished the book, did you decide that you would never wear anything that glow, glowed in the dark again? Like, was that just completely out of the question? Well, hopefully the stuff that glows now is, is safer. You never that, know. So. You never know until it's too late. True. So, so you, you write that book, it's huge, and then you have the second book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, just very recently mm -hmm. came out. Um, it, was there a lot of pressure for it, or did you kind of already have this in your mind? Um, how did you come across Elizabeth? So Elizabeth's story, finding that was almost sort of topsy-turvy in that I found I did, well I decided on my topic first but before I knew who Elizabeth was so the genesis of that book was yes Radium Girls had become this huge hit and I wanted to write another American history book you know my background before writing the Radium Girls was as you say doing ghostwriting doing you know books for hire written books about cats and you know gift books and all sorts of kind of crazy stuff and radium girls was my first history book and so yes it becomes this huge hit and you know I would like to write another book my publisher would like me to write another book and so you're then like well what am I gonna write for this difficult second book you know and as you say there is pressure you know even if it's just internal from me mm -hmm. uh it feels like there's pressure um, but I took my time about thinking about what I wanted to write about next. And 
ultimately, as I say, I chose the topic first. So I was inspired by the Me Too movement in the fall of 2017. And what really struck me about that movement was not that women were speaking up, because I think we always had. It was that finally we were being listened to and believed. And it got me thinking, you know, why has it taken so long for this to happen? And how have women been silenced in the past? Because as I say, we, there have always been accusations of rape, of misogyny, of sexual harassment, um, but they weren't taken seriously. And I figured often, you know, the reason women aren't taken seriously is because we're dismissed with this allegation that we're crazy, uh, you know, and therefore our words are undermined, uh, you know, our, our assertions and even our assertiveness is undermined you know our assertiveness can be used against us actually um you know as happens in the woman they could not silence assertive women are punished psychiatrically and this is something that is still super relevant not just to 2017 but to 2021 you know you look at Britney Spears you know that incredible testimony she gave earlier this year you know basically anytime she stood up for herself she was punished psychiatrically and that was what I wanted to write about I wanted to write about how that happens to women and you know all the societal implications that it has but I am a storyteller at heart so I didn't want to write a polemic I wanted to find one woman in history to whom this had happened you know a sane woman who stands up for herself is called crazy and yet hopefully you know prevails and triumphs because I wanted a happy ending for my book and so I went in search of her and fell down Yet again, you know, another internet search uh, engine rabbit warren. And I stumbled across Elizabeth's story in a University of Wisconsin essay. There was a, a reference to her in a paragraph, sort of four pages into this student essay. And so I then started looking into her story more closely and realised really quickly, you know, she is the one. Because it's an incredible story. It's got so much drama in it. Again, it's got, you know, twists of horror taking you inside the insane asylums of the 19th century. You know, and I mentioned Stephen King as an influence earlier. You know, I love Sylvia Plath as well, who obviously wrote The Bell Jar. Uh, I studied the yellow wallpaper at school. You know, all these things were sort of inspiring me as well. So this story of a sane woman locked up in an insane asylum just because she defies her husband and her inspiring fight for freedom and for justice, you know, it was just such a gift of a storyline and a subject. And so I realised that was what I wanted to write about next. And as you say, The Woman They Could Not Silence has just come out in June 2021. Well, what I find amazing is writing about uh, Elizabeth and making her a hero it is almost pretty easy. It's it's very much who she was, the way she was. It was even today, people like her don't come along. What I find very mm. interesting which is the way you did it, right? It's very easy to make the men in this book villains. And mm. her husband, Theophilus, which, I'm sorry, I probably didn't pronounce it right, and it's a ridiculous it, name. Uh, Theophilus. Theophilus. Can we just call him Theo? Theophilus. Can we just I go had, Theo? I had to look him up. I, I mean, when, yeah, when, when I, I was like, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> but yeah, Theophilus. All right, I'm just going to call him Theo from here on out. I'm Theo's allowed to. <laughs> so uh, he he's right, like he, because of the laws, he can throw Elizabeth into the sane asylum, almost completely throw away the key. And I think it would have been very easy to just make him this one-note villain 
who, you know, was just very, didn't like that Elizabeth talked back and didn't believe what he believed in things like that. Whereas you wrote him as, I mean, he's still very pathetic, um, but also kind of tragic too, that there are things pulling on him and he's just too weak to stand up and do what he needs to do. I, I really like that. And I mean, especially just the way, you know, not to give too much away because the reveal of their relationship towards the end is ridiculous, but that you didn't just make him a one note villain. He was somebody who was just kind of weak and pathetic, but he had this power over Elizabeth because of the laws and even the good doctor. He certainly doesn't come off. I think as well because he's not as pathetic and he is as a person in power, but his arrogance is really, he's not evil. He's just amazingly arrogant, which for a doctor is not necessarily a new thing for them. But it was very interesting with the way the laws put him in with such power that, you know, Elizabeth had a real rough time and he could do what he wanted to her from that perspective. Yeah, I, I think really insightful analysis. I sort of came to the same conclusion really about the doctor. He's not evil, but he is so arrogant that he therefore does evil things because he can't see the error of his ways. He's just so convinced that he's right. And I would say with both those characters and with all my characters really in, in these history books that I'm writing, I hope that the reason they're coming across as three-dimensional and not just these sort of cardboard cut-out villains is because of the research that I do. So, you know, with Theophilus, Elizabeth's husband, I was able to read his diary. And you're right, he is weak and he is pathetic. And, you know, he is a dull man. You know, I cannot believe that Elizabeth put up with him for 21 years of married life because just reading his diary for a summer I was like my god poor woman <laughs> she's got to put up with this guy you know complete hypochondriac and you know I, you know I, I write in the book that he uh, is a man that sort of records slights in his diary like a rich man unwilling to share his wealth you know he's one of those people that just sort of picks over every small wrong that's been d done him by his local neighbours you know and then sort of nurses it and sort of you know it becomes this big thing when it's just like just get over it it's not an issue you know um so yeah so hopefully both the characters are so fully rounded because I understand them as well as I understood Elizabeth because I've had access to their writings diaries letters you know publications that the doctor published for example things like that and so I've drawn on all, all of that to create these portraits of these real people and the way the laws worked, especially when it came to mental institutions, it really felt like the crucible all over again. It's like, all right, well, you got thrown in because of this. And for you to get out, you have to do this. And it's like, but both those things can't be true at the same time. That doesn't, this is yeah. a circle. Everything just became a circle. Yeah, exactly. That, that was what really got me, you know, Theophilus, you know, commits this, you know, essentially atrocity against Elizabeth, you know, sending her away to an insane asylum when she is not mentally ill. You know, she doesn't need treatment. And of course, she's angry at him for doing that. But then her anger is seen as a sign of sickness. And it's only if she says, I love my husband and I want to return to him, that she's able to escape that prison, essentially. But as you say, the, the two things can't be, you know, they don't marry up. She, she says, you know, to forgive my husband would be the insane act, to want to go back to this guy that has you know, committed this atrocity against me, that would be the insane thing to do. It's saner for me to be angry at him. But by the definitions of, you know, madness in the 19th century, an angry woman is a mad woman. And we still see that, you know, right up to 
today, you know, people like Kamala Harris, for example, you know, if she questions someone aggressively in the Senate, you know, she's called a madwoman because of that assertive questioning style. And Elizabeth faced exactly the same situation in the 1860s. Yeah, my six-year-old daughter is called bossy very often. I don't know where she gets it go. from. Yeah. But I, it, it's very funny reading through because I think, you know, talking about parents, I, I think in parts of the book, she almost does seem, you know, quote unquote, not really, but but crazy because it's like, just just tell him, yes, you forgive him and everything is fine. Get back to your home. Get back to your kids because she really did have that pull. And mm. at, at times you sit there and you say, you know, it's not a big deal. Get out of there first and figure it out and just accept it for a little while at least and then try and get away from him. But the things that she believed, she believed fully and just without question. Uh, did you feel that as you're kind of reading better and saying, God, good God, woman, just just say what you need to say to get out of there? Well, I, I think it's very telling about Elizabeth's character, actually, because really that was never an option for her. And the longer she spent in the insane asylum, the more, you know, the more certain she was that her path for her, you know, not to kowtow to their demands, not to give in and say, yes, you were right. I was mad all along. I'm going to go back to him. You know, that was just to do that would be to not be her anymore. And I, I think one of the things I find most interesting about her story and about the book is essentially it's the story of a woman you know, learning to become the woman they could not silence, learning to listen to herself, to find the voice within herself, you know, think about it, you know, as a sort of modern uh, comparison, um, you know, the, the, that greatest showman uh, song, you know, This Is Me, that's Elizabeth's journey in a nutshell, basically. She's saying, um, you know, this is me and I'm not going to change who I am and be something different, you know, accept me as I am and I, I will go down fighting but I'm not going to submit to your demands. That's the story, essentially, that Elizabeth is going on in this book. And I think for her as well, she was really driven by her faith. And she felt, you know, that God had got her into this situation. And she felt it within her that for her, it was this God-given mission that actually she had to stand strong and be true for womanhood, you know, not to become this thing and and that gave her renewed strength that actually she was going to you know be true to who she was and be true to her faith and do what she felt her god wanted of her um and that obviously you know really sort of steeled her for the fight that lay ahead because she felt she was doing not only what was right for her but what was right for her faith as well and your narrative doesn't lose it either that as strong as she was and with everything that she was willing to put up with and all of her strength, she's still in that time and in that place still needed men along the way for her to get out and all those things, whether it's the neighbors or something like that. It, it's it's not lost that no matter how strong she was in this particular time and place, she was still going to need men to help her out at certain very important points for he, her to get anything done, let alone get out of the asylum. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, no, I think she's quite savvy about how she, in later parts of the book, how she uses men to help her. And she does manipulate, uh, you know, the political figures who have the power at that time. She manipulates them, for example, on the issue of suffrage of saying, well, you know, Elizabeth was not a suffragist, but she would almost use women having the vote as this sort of uh, threat to encourage men, you know, and political figures to do what she wanted them to, to do. You know, it's like either you help us 
by passing these laws that will give women greater right to their earnings and yeah, to custody of their children. Or you're saying you're not going to look after us. Well, in that case, women need the vote because if you're not going to look after us, we need to look after ourselves. Um, so she was quite savvy, I think, in how she later you know, adapted to that reality that she would need men to help her, you know, do what she needed to get done. Uh, I do want to make the point as well that, you know, men are not the villains in this story. This it is a feminist book, but it's not an anti-men book. And a lot of men help her and are genuine good guys. You know, I, I do want to make the point that it's not an anti-man book. You know, her lawyer is amazing. You know, um, Samuel Sewell, who guides her through becoming a political campaigner, which is what Elizabeth goes on to do once she ultimately manages uh, to get out of the insane asylum. You know, he is such a mentor to her, you know, showing her how it's done, helping her, you know, get that foot on the ladder so that she can climb, climb, climb and become this phenomenal figure that she became and, and make all the changes that she was responsible for. And now you had mentioned this. Both your nonfiction books are American history. Are you drawn to them specifically or was it just, you know, Radium Girls with Happenstance and then you saw, you know, you know, Me Too and just it, it all came along that way? Or because the UK, I think you have a couple more years of history to pull from than us. <laughs> so, you know, what draws you to the American side of things? I mean, I love America, full stop. So, uh, you know, it is a country that I adore and I've been so lucky to travel around it and meet lots of readers. Uh, you know, such a wonderful adventure for me and such a pleasure. Uh, I would say, yes, Radium Girls, as I say, was just this serendipitous journey that I ended up writing this book about these American women and then it became this enormous hit, which was totally unexpected. And then with the follow-up, as I say, I was looking for a figure. She may have been a British woman, but she was American. So yet again, it was American history that I was writing. And you can understand, of course, that, you know, having found that incredible audience of readers in America, I wanted to write something that they would be particularly interested in. And perhaps they would have been interested in a British woman as well. But I felt perhaps it would have more resonance as well if she was American. But as I say, actually stumbling on Elizabeth, you know, I wasn't looking specifically for an American woman, but she happened to be American. But I think it was a good thing ultimately for the book. Speaking of travel, now this is technically virtual travel, I know. Is it true that under the right circumstances, you might drop into a book club that is reading one of your books? Is this true still? This is absolutely true. As you say, at the moment, COVID-wise, um, it is virtual. And to be honest, let's face it, even in non-COVID uh, times, it's likely to be virtual because I am based in the UK. But yes, I love it when book clubs are reading my books. Um, my website has sample questions. If anyone you know, wants some sort of you know, Kickstarter discussion points, if you visit my website, which is www.kate-more.com, uh, you can find discussion questions for the books and you can also email me um, because I love to join groups and I'm happy, you know, I'm, I don't really, I'm a night owl, so I don't mind joining late if that's better for your group. Um, and yeah, it's just always really nice to hear from readers. And I'm very, very happy to, to join book clubs if they'd like me, you know, to come along. Have you gone to one where you actually had to correct people who are trying to tell you what you were writing? I feel like that has to have happened at least once. No, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. And, and actually, you know, when you say correct people who tell me what I've been writing, I think once a book is out in the world, readers will make the book their own and they may see something in a book that 
you haven't anticipated being there at all, you know, or perhaps it was there subconsciously, but you didn't realize it. And then a reader says, oh my God, I loved, I, I actually, that happened to me when I was in Chicago once, this reader came up to me absolutely passionate about the Radium Girls. You know, her book was full of post-it notes and all highlighted, scribbled in the margins. It was just, just amazing for me as a writer to see. And she said she loved the way that the Radium and the women's relationship was almost like a domestic violence relationship you know the way I, I write about how intimate it is you know this radium dust that's sort of you know getting on the women's skin and clinging there it gets into their corsets and their lingerie and clings to the inside of their thighs and things like that and obviously then it attacks the women and bombards them physically and as I say she had identified that there were all these passages she's highlighted saying it was like a, a domestic violence relationship which I hadn't consciously thought of so when you say, you know, people tell you what you're writing, I, I think people see things in it. And actually, that's sometimes quite a gift for a writer to hear these different interpretations of what you've written. And people discover things that you weren't even, you know, you didn't even know were there yourself. I, I actually think that's kind of a wonderful thing. I mean, that's a delightful anecdote, but I also know some people are just very stupid. So I want you to be prepared for that <laughs> because it's going to happen. Probably okay. an American because we know everything, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> now, uh, The Woman They Could Not Silence, when does the movie come out and can I be in it? Even if I'm just <laughs> an extra in the courtroom scene, I'm fine with that. But funnily, funnily enough, my agent, my film agent, contacted me the other day saying there is interest. So uh, we're waiting to hear if something's actually going to come of it. If I've learned anything over the past couple of years is that Hollywood moves at like a snail's pace and every time you think something is definitely about to happen it doesn't happen for another sort of six months or so so yeah watch this space on the movie you know Elizabeth totally would be a phenomenal you know role for an incredible actress it's just such a wonderful story and she herself is such a powerful strong resilient woman uh, so I hope that there might be a movie or a tv series but we'll just have to watch this space have you done yes, your dream? Absolutely. You can have a cameo. Yes. I knew this would pay off sooner or later. Do you already have a dream actress in mind for Elizabeth? Uh, no. I mean, there, there are so many phenomenal women out there. Um, no is the short answer. I think Phoebe Waller Bridge, I'm just going to put it out there. I oh, think she could do interesting. it. Yeah, interesting. If she gets it, I, I like want to cut. I have thought of her before. Yeah, if she yeah. gets it, I want to cut of whatever she gets paid. Okay, okay. It's a little yeah. bit, it's fine. So I want to wrap up. I got one more question for you, right? Obviously, you're a very successful writer. You seem to be writing all the time. But especially with COVID, everybody's watching trash TV now. Are you willing to admit the most embarrassing things that you've watched during lockdown? <laughs> um, well, see, I'm one of those people that I, I sort of I embrace my guilty pleasures. So um, I would probably say the things that other people might say uh, is sort of your cheesy, uh, cheesy TV. I'm currently watching High School Musical, the TV series, okay. when the high school staged the musical. Um, so that's what I'm watching. But I'm a massive High School Musical fan. So, you know, for, for me, I, I openly admit that without any shame at all. Oh, you leaned right into it. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's going out on Twitter. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Well, listen, Kate, um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Everybody should read your books and go to your website, Radium Girls, The Woman They Could Not Silence, and kate-more.com. 
That's the one. And I have a newsletter as well. So if anyone would like to sign up for it, you can sign up for my newsletter via my website as well. So yeah, kate-more.com. Uh, and I want to say thanks to you for having me on and thank you for your brilliant reviews. I hope you get the audience you deserve because I just thought they were so witty and smart. So thank you. Thank you so much. I think it's just my mom right now. So hopefully we'll get a couple more. Thank you. And that is it for episode one. Thank you, Kate Moore, for coming on the podcast. Make sure you buy her books. Head over to her website to see everything that she does, kate-moore.com. And on this side of things, please go to historyandnerdunited.com. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, wherever you can find me. And keep an eye out for episode two, which will be out next month. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.